0: Thank you, Andy, for leading in that special time. Those are moments that never will be forgotten by moms and dads. It's a very special dedication. It's always a privilege and a joy to be part of it. Well, I'm Emerson Egrich, a guest speaker today. This is my first time to be in this great congregation, and it's a joy to be with you. My wife Sarah and I travel together almost 98% of the time, but she's had hand surgery on both of her hands, and she's in Michigan, and she sends her regrets. She wishes she could have been here, but I felt like, you know, I don't want her to slip or fall, so she's in recovery, but uh, she missed coming. So thank you, Jack, for having me come, and it's a delight. I do have my sister here. She lives in Canada, and she's come down for a couple of months to be in Fairhope, and she and her childhood good friend, Gloria, who lives there, drove over from Fairhope. She said she was coming to the 11 o'clock service, but my sister tends to lie to me, so I'm not quite sure. (laughs) Where, where are you, Ann? There you are, back there in Gloria. Thank you. Welcome. They are enjoying Alabama. Love it. Have you ever had a conflict uh, with your spouse when suddenly the issue didn't seem to be the issue? And their spirit deflates? What is the issue when the issue isn't the issue? I mean, is it, is it a plethora of things? I mean, could it be any number of things? What happens quite often is that we have this moment where we are talking about something that's serious to both of us or definitely one of us, and there's a point in the conversation when suddenly we sense the other person's spirit is either provoked or deflates, and we go, what? What? What, what did I say? What? 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 or we may not even ask the what, but we can clearly tell that something here has been said that has resulted in their spirit deflating. And what's interesting at that moment is most often we are in a little bit of disbelief about that because as we are in a relationship with our spouse, and it can happen between a a, a, a mother and son, a father-daughter, it can happen between anybody of the opposite sex. You've been working with someone at work for 12 years, male, female, and and, and where you have somewhat of a close relationship with the person, um, that they're not so guarded that they're not going to reveal that. So you have some kind of a relationship there. So it's not just husband wife. It's any male and female. And I'll say male and female. I'll explain that in a moment. Because what's interesting, when the other person's spirit deflates, We have a tendency to be dismissive of them as a bit childish. We're a little bit in disbelief that they would react to this because we can't imagine deflating or somehow reacting to this. It's no big deal to us. Not as as big as it is to them. And, And not only do we see them deflating over something that we think is somewhat childish, we sense at that moment that they're actually offended by us. That they're holding us responsible for what we consider an immature response. And, and we're, we're, we don't enjoy this kind of exchange. And this kind of thing happens in all relationships. The best of relationships, the ones that would be less than best. It happens with all of us. And what's interesting is that it, it happens based on gender, and we'll talk about that because I'm going to share with you, maybe I have the audacity to make this claim, but there's just one basic reason that the human spirit deflates. And it's pretty simple. And once you get this, it, it really does prove to be extremely helpful, and powerful, and it empowers us, yet it, it enables us to motivate the other person. I mean, there's just so many wonderful upsides to this. I, I guess I actually need to correct a little bit. There's one thing in the female, and there's one thing in the male. And they're not the same. And this is what makes it interesting. Because when her spirit deflates as a male, we just think she's overly sensitive. She she personalizes everything. Just unbelievable. Unbelievable. And here we go again. And not only are we in disbelief that she's deflating again over this, She obviously holds us responsible for not having done whatever we're supposed to do correctly. That we triggered this, we're the cause of this. And there comes a time when some men begin to really resent seven years into the marriage, 18 years into the marriage. Because we've been through this so often, we begin to think you know what? This isn't working. Our relationship doesn't work. I don't know what other people do, but ours isn't working. And the same thing on the other side. You're having this conversation with your husband and suddenly you can just sense. He's either provoked or he deflates. But you, you, you know that whatever the, the issue is, it's real, but it's no longer the root. Say, what is the issue when the issue isn't the issue? What is the root? Even though the topic is real, you don't dismiss the substance of that. That's a real topic. It isn't to be minimized. It isn't to be, but suddenly it is no longer the priority because they're more vulnerable to something else than they are to the topic, or so it appears. They're reacting to something other than the topic, or so it appears. And it's so easy as a wife to look at him and think, you know, those scales, our narcissism, are all true about you. It's all about you. It's all about you. And you can't believe that he would be so reactionary. It's so childish. Because you can't imagine reacting over something like this. And not only that, though, you're in disbelief that you can tell he's mad at you and hold you responsible for his negative reaction. And you're in disbelief. Let me illustrate how this happens. And I'll try to make the case, you don't have to buy into my argument that there's one thing in her and one thing in him, and it's actually a bell curve. I won't be dogmatic and say 100% of the time, but I'm going to share with you the research that's been done that points this out to be far more than any kind of stereotypic pigeonholing. It simply is not. It's predictable and it's statistically significant. I mean, off the chart statistically significant and has been repeated again and again and again in terms of social study. So. I'll come back to that in a moment. But when Sarah and I were first married, uh, we were going to school in the Chicago area. My mom and dad lived in Peoria. That's where Ann and I grew up. And uh, we decided one summer day to, or weekend to come down from Peoria, uh, uh, Chicago to Peoria. It was about a three, three and a half hour trip. And at that time, I wore contact uh, lens. And when I got home at uh, Peoria, and Sarah and I are there, we're newlyweds, we're about to go to bed, and I realized I forgot my contact case lens. So I thought, oh, good grief, what I mean? So I decided to get two juice glasses, put water in both of them, took my contact out and put it in the one juice glass, took my contact out and put it in the other juice glass, and then put the two juice glasses on the back of the toilet and went to bed. Don't get ahead of me. <laughs> in the morning, I got up and poured that out, put that contact in, poured it out. There's no contact. I mean, I looked everywhere. There was no second contact. And I, I just couldn't find it anywhere. So Sarah's out with mom and dad. And so I went out there and I said, Sarah, did, did you use one of those juice glasses last night? She said, No. What juice glasses? One of the juice glasses in, 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 in the bathroom. No. <gasps> yes, now I remember. Yes, I did get up. I did go. Yes, I used one of those juice glasses. I, yes, I took a pill with that. She drank my contact. Well, this moved quickly into heated fellowship. <laughs> I was not happy about this. And I, I said, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you drank. I, I can't believe you did that. She said, well, I can't believe you put your contacts in a juice glass. Well, I can't believe that you drank out of a juice glass on the back of a toilet. <laughs> and it escalated. And as that was escalating in front of my mom and dad, at a certain point, Sarah's spirit deflated. She kind of went quiet. And as a newlywed, I'm new to this kind of a thing, but afterwards, we needed to talk. (laughs) You see, at a certain point, it wasn't about the contact lens. That was real. I lost my contact. But at another point in that conversation, it went to a deeper issue, which was the root issue now in terms of our relationship for that moment in time, for those next several hours. So what was the issue with Sarah if the issue wasn't the contact lens? I'll tell you in a moment. Uh, fast forward now to the Christmas time. Sarah's a farm girl from Indiana. Her dad farmed 2,000 acres of corn, and she was part of 4-H and all of that farm community, and, and she was miscongeniality Congeniality of Boone County, one of the fairs, and she could sew, she could cook. And I, I've never asked her if she rode a bull, but I'm sure she could have. But, um, <laughs> You know, She just was part of that whole culture, and she made me a jean jacket for Christmas. It was the special last gift, the big gift, and she had done it secretly. I hadn't even been, I was clueless, and she kept it hidden from me. And so that moment came, Christmas morning, all the presents had been open, except for this last one. She's beaming, and I open up the box. It's a jean jacket. I put it on. Thank you. She's watching me like a hawk. She said, you don't like it. No, I I like it. She said, you don't like it. I said, no, I like it. You don't like it. I said, Sarah, I like it. Why are you telling me I don't like it? Because in our family, when we like something, we go, thank you, 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 (laughs) thank you. I said, in our family, we say thank you. (laughs) But at a certain moment, my spirit deflated. It was no longer about the jean jacket. And I wasn't aware of it at the time, but through the years I began to go back and think, you know, what was going on at that moment? Ah, ah. See, I deflated at a certain point because something just happened there to me as a male. Now, what's so interesting is that Sarah deflates when I think, oh, oh, we don't have to have this talk. So move on, drop it, forget it. It's no big deal. It's a big deal to her. And when she found out later, on, oh, come on. Well, uh, but it's a big deal to me. So what's going on? Well, one, it's one issue. And it's in our relationship and almost all the relationships, and we've done research and I'll share some in just a moment. It seems to be the, the pattern with her again and again and again. And it seems to be the pattern with me again and again and again. And this is discouraging at one level. But it's extremely encouraging and enlightening and exciting in another because once you understand this isn't really complicated and once we develop ways of dealing with it, it, it eases so much that has led to so much misunderstanding among people of goodwill. See, when Sarah and I married in 1973, I didn't say to Sarah, you know, I've been thinking about this. I hate you and you hate me, so let's get married. See, it doesn't go down that way. So how is it the two people filled with good will suddenly begin to think maybe they married Hitler's distant cousin? How does this happen? Due to misunderstanding, not ill will. Ill will can set in through resentment, distrust can be undermined through adultery and other things, but it doesn't start there. It never starts there. And this is why we've been bringing healing to many couples because we say you got derailed earlier on due to an honest misunderstanding There was never ill will. It was this ongoing clashing of different views on things due to your gender, and it it ended up causing this tension between the two of you. Because for the life of you, you couldn't understand why the other wasn't stopping this. We, We brought what we call in philosophy the moral ought. You ought not to feel that way. And you ought to react this way. And they said, well, you ought not to feel the way you feel, and you ought to react this way. And based on our gender... We're correct. It's so easy. Just do this. And see, one of the challenges for us as a culture, and this is why there's some tension in the relationship, that, and and maybe quoting Jesus here will help me make the point. In Matthew 19.4, he said, Have you not read, He who made them from the beginning made them male and female? That's important because there's an XX chromosome and an XY chromosome, and that ain't gonna go away because it's genetics, it has nothing to do with socialization. It's within our DNA. I mean, in the womb, 400% chemicals flood over a little girl that do not flood over the boy, in the womb, which results in the eye-to-eye contact that you see in little girls, eye-to-eye, the facial, they can read emotion, little girls, off the chart, and then you go down through the history of womanhood and the nurturing and caregiving of women is just It is so beyond all research that we don't even pay attention to it anymore. Women care, and they care deeply. And we don't pay attention to this. And that's not the result of socialization in its deepest sense. You learn different ways to care based on the cultural's application, but women can't not care. So that implication is huge because you get into a relationship with someone and it's so easy to think that maybe your husband doesn't care as much as you do, which leads to a judgmentalism and an anger toward him, that he seems to not be as sensitive as he ought to be. The implication of this is staggering. And men do not have, generally, the fears that women have. Women have fears. No man here fears getting raped. We just don't have the fear. Women function in many ways on fear. And there are reasons for that that are substantive. Men don't have the fears. It's so easy. Grow up, woman. Quit. You just freak out over everything. So easy to be dismissive. And I could go on and on and on about the research that points these things out that are inherent. And instead of resenting them, we need to embrace them. Because once you begin to understand some of this, it explains some of the reactions and it explains some of the deflating. But one of the problems we have in the culture is that because we say that men and women are equal, we have said they are the same. Big mistake. Because we're equal does not mean that we're the same. And if we were the same, then one of us is unnecessary. But you're not going to have children apart from the egg and sperm. You simply cannot do that. We are equal, but we're not the same. And God, from a believer standpoint, Jesus said, Have you not read he who made them from the beginning, made them male and female? Very precious. I like the fact that God designed women to look at the world through pink sunglasses and colors what she sees. She wears pink, she puts in pink hearing aids and affects what she hears. She speaks through a pink megaphone. and She expects everybody to know what she means, by what she says, because her girlfriends do. He has blue sunglasses colors what he sees, blue hearing aids, affects what he hears. He speaks through a blue megaphone, and he expects everybody to know what he means but what he says because all of his buddies do. Now the pink and blue thing causes some people to hate that analogy because it's stereotypic, and there's a conditioning in academia, and I was in an academic community in East Lansing, Michigan for many years. When you you use word pictures that suggest to some people stereotypic thinking, they go nuts, they just go crazy. So one of the things we need to see is that this word picture is very helpful to many of us because when you put pink and blue together, what color does that form? Purple, the color of royalty, the color of God. And the Bible says that God made us man and woman, husband and wife, to reflect the nature of God, the image of God, the character of God. It is powerful. And in that sense, God's not pink, God's not blue, God is purple. Husband and wife together reflect his nature, his image, his character. It is a precious thing. And if you are called to be celibate, you receive what we call a compensatory gift. It is a gift that's given to you that compensates for you so that you can reflect the nature of God as an individual as opposed to one who's in a marriage. And the awesome beauty of this, even Christ and the church is represented in the husband-wife relationship that Paul talks about. I mean, this is a precious privilege that we have. And God designed us to come together as husband and wife to reflect his nature. He didn't make us the same, though he made us equal. And there's a deep reason for that. And it's a good thing. But that difference leads to clashing preferences because what she focuses on and what she deems is important sometimes isn't a focus of his, and he doesn't really necessarily think it's that important. Two guys go, honey. They're out four days. They come back. She said, how was your time with Harry? Good. What would you talk about? None. Didn't you talk about his wife's pregnancy? Is Mary pregnant? (laughs) See, women cannot imagine that two men could be together and not talk about the pregnancy. So therefore, they don't care. Isn't that the correct conclusion? And yet, every man here would literally die for his wife. Recently, remember in Aurora, Colorado, where that man opened up fire in that theater? There were female commentators that were stunned when they learned that three boyfriends there with their girlfriends threw themselves instantaneously on their girlfriends, weren't even married, threw themselves on their girlfriends, took the bullets, died. And those three girls walked out of that theater. And there were female commentators who were saying, what's with this? There wasn't one man in this country who said, what's with that? The disconnect between who we are as men. We literally die. And Jesus Christ said, no greater love is a man than this that he laid on his life for his friend. According to Jesus, self-sacrifice is the definition of love. The problem is when men are not sentimental and forget to write a card, then he is labeled as unloving because he's so insensitive. And yet, tomorrow night, he literally gives his life. I wonder how many of those three couples had an argument going into the theater where each of the girlfriends was trying to coach him on being more loving. We need to define people based on how Jesus Christ defines them. Not hallmark. And that isn't to be dismissive of the woman's sentimentality and needs. It's something that God has made within you. It's only to say, if we become judgmental, self-righteous, and bitter toward the male because he fails to be a female, we need to hear Jesus again. Have you not read, He made them from the beginning made them male and female. And I add to that, not wrong. Just different Equal, but not the same. Pink and blue, together to reflect his image. But what is this one thing that's going on in the spirit of Sarah? What's this one thing going on in the spirit of Emerson? And is she every woman? Is he every man? Think bell curve here. I'm not going to say 100% of the time. But I'm going to share with you that this one thing is so much the case that once we get in tune with it, it just enables us to, to be at peace with each other because we don't end up resenting the other and continuing to have the conflict escalate. You can get off of the conflict cycle. The University of Washington studied uh, 2,000 couples for 20 years, and they had their love laboratory where couples would stay together. They would videotape them. There was audio tape. They would have them what they physiologically monitored for BPMs, beats per minute, heartbeats per minute. Uh, they had the sociologist, the clinical psychologist, the, the medical... A field. They were all taking notes, evaluating the linguistic, the use of words. It's just in depth for those 20 years. And they said, we now know the two key ingredients for successful marriages. We know what makes a marriage succeed, and we know what contributes to a marriage failing. And they said the two key ingredients are love and respect. And what I found fascinating as a academic in the research component, but I'm also a a biblical assistant, so I had the privilege of studying the Bible 30 hours a week for nearly 20 years. I said, that's what God said at the end of Ephesians 5, the greatest treatise on marriage in the New Testament, where he says, love and respect. He summarizes it, that a husband is to love his wife and a wife is to respect her husband. You said, well, wait a minute, Emerson, the University of Washington said love and respect. I mean, we all need love and respect equally. You just went gender specific there in the Ephesians passage. Well, so did the research and so is my research. Now, let me make an important point here. We all need love and respect equally. We all need love and respect equally. Did I say to you, we all need love and respect equally? Yes, I did. But there is a felt need during conflict that differs. During conflict, for instance, very few men feel unloved. Why? Because women love to love. It's put within your nature to nurture. God designed you that way. That's why, in the Bible, you're not commanded to agape, love your husband. In the domestic portions of Scripture, no woman, no wife has commanded to agape love her husband. That silence shouted at me as a Bible student. And I remember saying, Lord, why have you not commanded a wife to agape love her husband in the way that you've commanded me as a husband to agape love my wife? The Lord said, I put it within the nature of women to nurture. Women love to love at the level of intimacy. You have to wound a woman at the level of intimacy to get her to stop loving. I'm not going to command her to do what I designed her to do because I'm not into redundancy. I mean, ladies, listen to the number of times you say love in a day. Love you, love you. See you, bye. Love you, love you. Exes, nose, love you. Hearts, love you, love you. Bye, mom. Love you, love you, love you, love you, love you. Love, love you, love you, love you, love you. It just doesn't stop. There are things that you are as a person. Uh, Deborah uh, Tannen, the linguist, has studied the female language. You women say "I'm sorry" all the time, and you're not apologizing. Your word "I'm sorry" also means "I sorrow with you." It's an empathetic. "I'm sorry," "I'm sorry." Sometimes guys will say to you, what are you apologizing for? You had nothing to do with it. Well, you didn't mean you were apologizing. We don't even understand the nuances of that expression. You say it all the time. Listen. See, we don't pay attention to the amount of that expression. I'm sorry. You say it all the time. You say love all the time. God has designed you to be very sensitive and loving and caring and empathetic toward people. It's in your nature. But it's really not of any credit of your own. And how easy it would be to judge your husband, who isn't that by nature. Isn't that an interesting implication? But the University of Washington gets very gender specific, and, and though we all need love and respect equally, they begin to realize this thing plays itself out. During conflict, it just kind of plays itself out differently. For instance, During conflict, they began to realize 85% when there was a marital tension, in 85% of the cases, at a certain point, the man would withdraw emotionally. He'd just shut down and stonewall. It's kind of like, I'm done. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Drop it. Forget it. He'd even physically exit or just read the paper and wouldn't let her access. 85%. Now, is that stereotyping men? Is that pigeonholing men? Is that somehow reinforcement that men are narcissistic, that they're uncaring? Or should we look at this as some kind of a male temperament that may give us a clue? But first of all, they asked the women, what do you feel when your husband withdraws and stonewalls? And here was the descriptor that they put in this research. The women said it feels like an act of hostility. That's what the women said, an act of hostility. He hates me. He doesn't love me. Not really. Because she said she could not imagine shutting down over what she perceived to be a minor criticism. It just was beyond the scope of her understanding. She just can't grasp this. It's so easy, see, when he would deflate, oh, brother, oh, 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 now what? Now what did I say? And not only did she see that as childish, he was holding her responsible for his reaction, and she was aghast. And you do that for seven years, 18 years, and you begin to resent the other person if you don't know what's going on. Now, in, what's, what's interesting during this conflicted moment, they had the man's heartbeats being monitored, and during these conflicted moments, the men's heartbeats would get to 99 beats per minute. He looked very stoic, but he's in, that's called warrior mode. 99 beats per minute is the heartbeat per minute that a man goes to right before he jumps on a hand grenade to save his buddies in war. The adrenaline, it just is just... And when that happens, this is why your husband says, you're picking a fight with me. And you're not trying to pick a fight. You're trying to connect, but he thinks you're picking a fight because it feels to him, because no one talks to him this way. No one in his life talks to him the way you talk to him. So it, to him, it's just, you're picking a fight. You're just using this topic as an opportunity to send me a message, and you don't like who I am as a human being. And, and so this, this feeling that she has, but he's doing this act of hostility, but the question here is, why is he reacting this way? When she looks like she's emotionally out of control, her heartbeats were normal. Because all you have to do is, in humility and genuinely say, I'm sorry, honey, I shouldn't have reacted that way. Women will go, oh, I'm sorry too, I shouldn't have said I was bad, I was really worse They'll go, right, it's axiomatic. Because she's now achieving the objective behind that apparent, out of control emotion. She's not out of control. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's just trying to get a message through, and that's the best way she knows how to do it. You get humble, she softens immediately. Because her heartbeats are not, she's not out of control but we actually look like we're under control and we really, that, those heartbeats. So the, what's going on with the male? Well, if Annie and I were best of buddies and we got into a heated moment here and we were really, you know, at a certain point, men don't talk, you just really, oh, but we're best of buddies, so what do we do? Drop it, forget it, I'm out of here, I'm not. And we do that because we could hurt each other physically. So it's, an, it's honorable. In our world as men, trust me ladies, when two guys are best of buddies and there's something that happens and they are so, oh, they know at a certain point they're lethal, so they, you drop it, forget it, let's just calm down, I know it's not that important, it's no big deal, let's just forget it. That's what we do, it's who we are, it's the way God made us, because there's an honor code that we live by, and that's honorable. So it raises the question then, in this kind of a conflict where the man is withdrawing and stonewalling, is it an act of hostility? or is it an act of honor? It just depends on whether you're videotaping in pink or blue. The answer is yes. But the culture of intimacy has become pink, so the judgment is made against your future precious baby boy. How many of you have sons? He will be labeled as hostile, hateful, and unloving. It won't be that he does what he does because he's trying to do the honorable thing. Won't even come close to it. Because it'll be interpreted through the female emotionality and need. And that's a legitimate need. But there are two in the relationship. And both have a need. The problem, of course, is at those moments, each has a different need. And each tries to deal with what they perceive to be an unmet need in different ways. They cope differently. But what happens is the way they cope ends up being offensive. And quite often, we're feeling defensive in the first place, but our defensive reaction appears offensive, and this thing just really gets out of control at times. And we're in disbelief over each's reaction. On the other side of the equation, they started watching what women did. And they noticed that in the home, women are very assertive. Outside the home in stranger groups, women allow for interruptions. They're quieter. Uh, women are, are different in that. But in the home, they're very assertive. You don't have to train a, a wife to be assertive toward her husband unless she lives in just absolute fear of the man. So she will move toward him to connect. And when she does that... She's trying to connect. You know, I've said to men, your wife confronts to connect. The guy says, no, she confronts to control. I said, no, she confronts to connect. She tries to control. It's very difficult for men. And so, but what the researchers began to look at is that's a criticism. There's a complaint. She's bringing a criticism and a complaint. And over two, two decades, uh, <laughs> 2,000 couples, that's not politically correct for us to say that women are critical and complaining. Well, yeah, but that's what it is. is you, you, we got to be fair to the... And they did. Criticism, complaint, criticism, complaint, criticism, complaint, criticism, complaint. And the husbands are asked, what do you feel on this ongoing criticism? Ongoing criticism just feels like she's got contempt. Contempt was the descriptor. Contempt for who I am. She's just using this topic as an opportunity to send me a message that she finds me despicable as a human being. That I'm not as loving and caring and sensitive as she is and there is something inherently wrong with me. And she's using this topic as another opportunity to send that message to me. Now, I know from the research, and I've already pointed out, women do what they do because they care. They, they move toward the husband because they care. They don't see this criticism as a criticism. They, I, I'm bringing this up because I care about us. I care about you. I'm complaining because I care about us. I care about you. I, I'm trying to get a message through. So it raises the question, is it an act of contempt or is it an act of care? It just depends on whether you videotape him pink or blue. But the answer is yes. But what happens today in the culture of intimacy, she labels him as hostile, and she labels herself as caring. She doesn't see the contempt Or that he does what he does out of honor. And your precious daughter-in-law, sweet, no meanness in her, she's not going to understand this, and she's going to send a message. In fact, Charlie Feldhahn did a research, and they asked 400 American males this question. Would you men rather be left alone and unloved in the world or be viewed as inadequate and disrespected by everyone? Again, would you men rather be left alone and unloved in the world or viewed as inadequate and disrespected by everyone? A random sample, decision analysts out of Houston, a secular group, and they were blown away by a number of questions, but that was one of them, and almost pushing up to 80 percent of the men said they'd rather be left alone and unloved in the world. Men are very vulnerable. Not egotistical, not narcissistic. When you send a message, I find you inadequate as a human being and I do not respect who you are as a human being. We're not talking about respecting bad behavior. No one respects bad behavior. We're talking about respectfully confronting the spirit of the man who has conducted himself in a way that's not respectable. In the same way you don't love the fact that your wife is doing something horribly wrong, you lovingly confront her spirit about that which isn't lovable. We get it on that level, why do we not get it here? Because the natural response on the part of a female when she's upset is to be disrespectful. She doesn't see it, though. And the same thing, a man is very naturally unloving when he feels disrespected, but he doesn't see it. It's very natural for us as a man to withdraw and stonewall on the heels of what we perceive to be disrespect. And we don't understand the extent to which it feels like an act of hostility toward her. So we feel that we're correct. And you're trying to do the loving thing on the heels of feeling unloved, and you come across in a way that you've upped the ante, but you're not trying. I mean, women say to me, I don't know what respect is. I said, you know what disrespect is? They say, yeah, I got that down. I got that down. But he should know I didn't mean it. And you don't. You're trying to get a message through. So we have this huge misunderstanding, and that's when this derailment begins to happen. We've asked 7,000 people this question. When you're in a conflict with your spouse or significant other, do you feel in love at that moment or disrespected? 83% of the men said they feel disrespected. 72% of the women say they feel unloved. See, this is a felt need, not a true need. We're not talking about she needs respect, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. But here's the deal. Follow the money. What do I mean? Watch the movie industry, watch the card industry. There's not one card from a husband to a wife with an anniversary card that says, baby, I really respect you. Happy anniversary. And at the end of a movie, you don't have the hero embrace the damsel and say, I want to respect you the rest of my life. Follow the money. The movie Hollywood understands it. They understand male and female. The, the card industry understands it. It's not to say you don't need R-E-S-P-E-C-T. You do. But even that song was written by Otis Redding, and she stole it from him. <laughs> even one song we had, they took, you know, Aretha came. They, she, she didn't steal it, but he said, that little girl took that song from me. And he was singing it to his wife. <laughs> I need your respect." The point here is, you need R-E-S-P-E-C-T. But if that's all you need, then you've been wounded probably from the man you're in love with, or you're in love with somebody else. I've done this enough, now. No. At the end of the day, you want each of us to love each other. You want him to love you like you love him, and you're insecure, does he love you as much as you love him? There's a bonding and an attachment that goes on in females that's off the charts with who you are. And you're insecure about whether he loves you. So what happens though, is that this thing can get really crazy really quick. And I call it the crazy cycle. Without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, he reacts without love. Then without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, he reacts without love. And this baby starts to spin. And when the issue isn't the issue, in all probability, not always, but in all probability, uh, bell curve, statistically significant, she's probably feeling unloved, and he's probably feeling disrespected. The challenge is, what are we going to do at that moment? And what's even more interesting is that something happens that feels unloving to you as a woman. You seek to do the loving thing to move toward him. In that conversation, he tells you're disrespectful. He shuts down on you, and you feel even more unloved. And you have four levels of proof that you're right. You're not interested in being right, you just know you are. And when you get together with the other girlfriends, you all have the same experience, and groupthink sets in. But the same thing's going to happen with all these daughter in laws towards your sons. And we've got to put a stop to this. Have you not read? He who made them from the beginning made them male and female. Not wrong, just different. We're not talking about violence here. We're not talking about immorality. We're talking about clashing preferences that we all get into. And men don't put a voice and vocabulary to this, but the guy comes home, he's worked all day, and suddenly comes in and something very disrespectful is said out of nowhere from his perspective. And so he's a good man, a gentle giant. He just tries to suck it up a little bit. And so he, he, he puts it down. He just, he doesn't, he doesn't engage it. He just goes quiet. Felt disrespected. He tries to do the honorable thing, because this is unbelievable. If a guy talked to him this way, I couldn't believe So he tries to do the honorable thing, only now to hear that he's the most unloving person on the planet, and he feels even more disrespected. And he, he just, he, does, he, does, he has no way to, to figure this out. And if he says, you're not respecting me, he'll say that once the first year of the marriage, maybe twice, when she, I don't and here's, the, here's what women say, well, Dr. Emerson, look, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't feel any respect for him. And It'd be hypocritical for me to do something that I, I don't feel, and I know you don't want me to be hypocritical. He's not superior to me, and that's the dictionary definition of respect. You show respect to your superiors. Uh, he's not superior to me. I'm not inferior to him. I'm not going to be treated like a doormat. He hasn't earned the respect. Everybody says respect must be earned. He has not deserved it. He must earn it by being as loving as I am, and he's not. And therefore, I'm not going to give it to him until he is. I'm certainly am not going to give him license to do what he wants to do. I'm not going to come in and just bow down, pom poms, and worship, and go ahead and do whatever you want. I'll respect it. I certainly'm not going to lose a sense of self or identity and set the feminist team. Back 50 years, I certainly am not going to subject myself to emotional abuse. But, you know, other than these things, I'm really open to hearing what you have to say about (laughs) this. And women are not mean-spirited in this. This is rooted in fear. The fear that she's not going to be loved and honored in the way that God intends for her to be. And there's a fear that comes right up here when we talk about respecting a man. And that mantra is what you have. And that's going to be the mantra of your sweet daughter-in-law. And your son is just going to die. Because he has a need. We're not talking about an egotistical, narcissistic attitude. It's a need. And it's the need that men have. And when we go to war, men go to war, we honor each other. And within hours, we're all dead because we died for each other. We honor the spirit of the man. We believe in the man. We don't see this as narcissistic. We, there's a dis, there is such a huge disconnect. But when men feel disrespected, they don't break down and cry. And as a result of that, we misinterpret them. They get angry. And that just reinforces that they've got a problem. Women break down and cry, so guess where the empathy goes? But many women have said, "When I'm crying, I'm so spitting mad, I can't see straight. But the culture doesn't interpret you that way. They interpret you as the victim, he's the victimizer. Your son will be the victimizer. But we can do this differently. But now it raises this question as I close. How do you get off of that crazy cycle? Without love, she reacts without respect, without respect, he reacts with love. This was the issue when Sarah and I, contact lens, the the gene jagged, we, we got on the crazy cycle. And we still get on the crazy cycle. But we know how to jump off quickly. Because it'll come at us any number of ways. But we have the tools. And some of you have a great influence on a lot of people. Can you give them the tools to jump off the crazy cycle? Because I don't want you to see the people you care about deeply on this, what I call the crazy cycle, and they end up in divorce because of an honest misunderstanding. So those of you who return tonight, I'm going to share some tools with you that you can use to help them. I hope that I can serve you. You have a lot of wisdom, but maybe I can add to some of that. But how do we get off of that? How do we get off that crazy cycle? Tonight, I'm going to share how we can jump off, how thousands of couples have learned to jump off that crazy cycle. And I'll tell you, we're all going to get on it. You can't stay off of it. You just can't. It's going to happen. Because you're going to have honest differences of opinion. And you each have vulnerabilities where the other doesn't. And it comes at us unexpectedly. And when it happens, what are you going to do? Tonight, I'm going to share with you what you can do. Let's close in prayer.